0: This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, April 17th of 2018, it's episode 131. In this episode, Daniel Silver and Father David Subu join us to talk about Doxicon Prime 2018 and Christian genre fiction, plus indie RPGs which deserve more love, The Satanic Panic, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter.
1: I'm Jenny.
2: And I'm Daniel Silver.
3: Father David Subu, 5th Level Cleric and Lifetime Grognard.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So we're, we're pushing our limits here. We're trying again to have two guests on at once, and it's going to be awesome. So uh, Father David Subu, Daniel Silver are here to talk about Doxicon and a few other things. First of all, if you could introduce yourselves, and then we'll talk a little bit about Doxicon and, and why you're on the show.
3: Sure, my name is Father David Subu. As I mentioned, I'm a lifetime gamer, at least since the fourth grade, I believe, and uh, have been a priest for a little less than that, maybe 18 years, which is uh, probably half the time I've been gaming. But I'm trying to redeem the time.
2: And I'm uh, Daniel Silver. I'm a I'm an Orthodox convert, eight years now. I, I grew up around the world in various Protestant denominations, and then went to an evangelical college, kind of fell away from Christianity, and came back looking for something, and, and I found Orthodoxy. I've been into gaming since high school. I've played tabletop games a lot, and I've been playing RPGs, GURPS, D&D, Dread, Blades in the Dark, Dogs in the Vineyard, Dialect, all all kinds of games.
1: You play Dialect?
2: Oh, all the time. You're
1: the first person outside this podcast that I've ever heard mention Dialect, and this is very exciting for me.
2: I love that game so much. I've probably done about a dozen games now with different people. It's been a lot of fun.
1: I haven't actually gotten to play. I've only just like read through the rules a whole bunch. I used to study linguistics, so it's like right in my <laughs> wheelhouse.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Sorry,
1: I, I'm, I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> no, no, no,
2: we're, we're, we're all
0: about, about now. something. This is terrible. It makes for the worst sort of <laughs> podcast. People yeah, not, not
4: enthusiasm. Whatever <laughs> what do we do?
0: <laughs> uh, okay. So we're very excited to have you both on. It's really exciting. We have not had many. Orthodox guests in the past. So I'm kind of excited about, about that as well. I also want to talk about Doxicon because I just found out about Doxicon a couple months ago. There was an article I read about it. Uh, and I don't even remember where I found it, but I've been very curious about it. I'm very glad to have people on to talk about Doxicon, what it is and why it's cool and why our listeners ought to consider attending.
3: Very good. Yeah. Well, we're excited about it, too. I mean, it's kind of like one of those things where, like, somebody needs to do this. And we said, why not us? And so we went for it. So the basic concept is a few years ago, we were talking about um, Comic-Con was happening, and we were talking about that. And we were also um, talking about how there wasn't a lot of um, really deep or meaningful Christian reflection on genre fiction and film. And we thought there should be something like that. And when we looked around, we didn't really see too much that was going on. There was a couple people that were starting to kind of emerge in that field. The medieval studies programs, you'll always find people that are kind of like working with Tolkien or something like that. But it was a very Mm -hmm. limited application. Uh, So we decided we wanted to create something that was kind of a hybrid. It was something for fandom. So kind of like a Comic-Con. But also a conference for some serious theological reflection by Christians of all walks and confessions to express how they have kind of integrated their faith with their fantasy. Um so that was back in
2: 2012 and we had our first conference in 2013. Um and then we've had here in DC we've had conferences in 2015 and 2017 and we've also had conferences in Seattle and we're getting one off the ground in Toronto as well now. Um and we're going to be having Doxicon this year November 2nd and 3rd. That's very cool.
0: Looks like the the website hasn't been updated yet. Cause I still see the 2017 date, but
2: yeah, that, uh, we're, tell me we're, those dates again. Uh, we're updating it. So it's going to be, uh, this year, 2018, November 2nd and 3rd in Washington, DC at St. Sophia's Greek Orthodox cathedral. Fantastic.
0: I'm really kind of surprised that nobody had done this yet, but at the same time, it's like, well, I'm, I'm glad someone stepped up to do it. Right. Cause it's interesting. 2012 is the year we started saving the game. Mm-hmm. If, if my math is right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if there's just some critical mass that built up because there were a couple other <laughs> geek ministries launched around that same time.
3: I have to give the shout out to my wife or she'll kill me because <laughs> she's the one who said you guys should do this. And I was like, yeah. really, we should. And once my wife gives me permission, I'm off full steam ahead. Right. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. Yeah, it was really uh, Preetasa Stephanie was really the one who, who pushes because I, I think Father David and I weren't necessarily serious because we, we had this one conversation and it sounded kind of fun. But I, I don't think without her, we, we wouldn't have done it. And she's just been such a driving force behind it all.
0: That's super cool. I'm really excited. I am. I can never promise anything with two kids and a job, but it's on my short list of conventions to get to. So awesome. We'd love
2: I, to have you there.
0: I'd love to go. <laughs> it, it would be really cool. And it's not quite as far as, you know, the usual saving the game hang, uh, hang out and meet up at, in St. Louis. So <laughs> there's that. If somebody wants to find out about Doxicon, where can they find more information?
2: Well, they can find out more information at our, our website at uh, www.doxicon.org, um, mm-hmm. and they can also go to our Facebook group, um, which is where we post most things. And that's also just kind of a general hangout for all of us uh, geek orthodox, if you will, who, to discuss these, these matters. And so that those are really the two best places to find out more.
0: Great. And that's the Doxicon Prime group. Am I correct on that? That is correct.
3: Okay, also- good. I will make sure a, that that uh, is
0: linked in the show notes.
3: Sorry, there's also a regular Doxicon group, which was the original one. We still post just articles and things like that, yeah. as an, as opposed to like an event page. Gotcha.
0: Okay, well, I will make sure that as much of that as I have will be linked in the show notes. Real quick, Peter, Jenny,
1: any news and notes that we want to address
0: very, very quickly before we kind of move on here?
1: Uh, nothing in, in particular.
4: Okay. No, our gaming news is, is minimal. I mean, we started again. Next episode, we'll probably have a bunch because the campaign that I've kicked off in the setting that I've been designing in the blog should be starting about a week from the time when we're recording this. Six days. Yeah, yeah whatever. And
0: that's going to be an interesting game to talk about. I mean, it's a D&D game and I have motorcycle parentheses rad written on my character sheet. So
4: <laughs> <laughs> it promises to be good. Yeah, yeah, a little little anachronistic from your typical D&D setting, but it was kind of some of the idea, so. Fantastic.
0: I'm super excited, and we did our Session Zero prep for Headspace last night, and I'll have stuff to talk about then when we actually run that game, but
4: yeah. Yeah, I actually wouldn't mind discussing our Session Zero for the the campaign that's starting next week either, but not when we have guests on. (laughs) of course We have too much to get to. Exactly. (laughs) And
0: then one other very, very quick note for our listeners just by virtue of the fact of having several guests on in rapid succession and some scheduling issues that kind of turned into a bonus our backlog is a little bit longer than usual uh, and will be probably until june when i need to take advantage of that backlog for editing purposes normally we have like a 10 to 12 day delay between like when we record an episode and when it releases that will be even longer than usual so yeah, fyi we actually have an episode in the can yeah, so it's- It's very strange and I don't know what to do with it other than take advantage of it when I go on vacation. (laughs) Let's move on here. Actually, I should ask Daniel and Father David, are you guys gaming right now? What kind of game are you playing in?
2: I actually just came from a session one of a D and D fifth edition with some friends of mine. Um, We're doing an alternate history in Prague after the second demonstration of, uh, of that, of that city. And it involves some of the population turning into different D and D races and classes and how that comes out in alternate history, actually.
1: Ooh, goblinization.
2: Yes. We've already had goblins. It's been
3: amazing maybe there, <laughs> maybe there will be a degoblinization of prague <laughs> <laughs> in the days to come uh i am playing in a mutants and masterminds second edition game which is awesome uh which has been going now for about 10 years which is great wow. uh, and i'm running a uh, pathfinder game right now which is uh adventure path rain of winter which is Got the Baba Yaga theme and uh, a lot of stuff that I can draw my um, knowledge of Eastern European culture into. So it's great. That sounds really cool. Both of those do.
0: All right. So let's uh, let's move on here. We've got a Patreon question we need to roll up off our big list of questions that our Patreon supporters send in to us. So I'm going to go ahead and roll a die and let's see what we come up with here. Oh, okay. This is a fun one. Uh, so this is from Nathaniel Farley. What is your favorite possibly indie RPG that you think needs more love in the wider world. And then he adds as an addendum, mine is definitely Swords Without Master. Great game with no conflict. Dice mechanics just uses dice to help tell the story. I do like Swords Without Master. It's really neat.
2: That's no fair. That's the one I was going to pick. Uh.
0: Okay, well tell us why Swords Without Master is as awesome as you and Nathaniel
2: think it is. So Swords Without Masters is uh, by the creator of of Dread and it's just this amazing conflictless dicing system and one of the big things that they they do is it's all about tone. And so you have uh jovial and you have, I think it's like somber or, or glum. I think glum. It? glum yes. And yeah. so it, it's all about creating these wonderful, rich tapestries with your words and, and the players and the, it's not really a GM. It's more of a moderator kind of go back and forth on these and just set up these wonderful things. And one of the, one of the best rules I love is there's a session where it's like, uh, this is so you can show the other players how awesome your character is and it's just such a it's i think it's one of i think it's the heights of like
4: cooperative storytelling essentially yeah it's great who wants to go next uh i'll take this one okay the trouble with rose um yes Todd zerker made this uh this little tiny freely available online indie project years ago, and it works really, really well. I've played um, with him using like a Mass Effect playset. I have played several convention games with Jenny's mom, Shannon, using a Talking Animals in the Age of Sail playset, and just about permanently wrecked my voice laughing and doing funny voices. <laughs> it's a fantastic game, it plays very quickly. I, I can't say enough good things about it. It's it's wonderful.
1: My mother actually used to use it when she was in um when she was doing like uh Sunday school for kids. She used it a lot when she was in the Sunday school ministry.
4: Oh, very cool.
1: They used it specifically with parables. There was one parable in particular that ended up going a pretty different direction, but not a bad one. I think one of the kids who was playing a guard was like, you're all being a little bit ridiculous. And if we'd all sit down and talk about our problems, everything would turn out fine. Um,
4: <laughs> there's, a, there's always that one kid that's five going on 47.
1: <laughs> that kid was about 12. But yeah, okay. 12 going on 47. <laughs> the yeah, Trouble with Rose is a good one. I'm actually going to say uh, the one that uh, it was Daniel, right? Yes. Daniel. You mentioned dialect earlier. Yeah. I, I'm going to say dialect. I feel like it got a lot of hype in like the first week of the Kickstarter. And then since then, I've heard only me and the people I've told about it talk about the game. And it's really, really cool, little abstract. And I like that. Um, I like that particular type of abstraction, because as previously mentioned, I'm not a big fan of games like Fate that abstract mechanical things in certain ways. But dialect is something that I really like on a very personal level. Like I, I'm... Uh, it will not be for everybody. If you really like dungeon crawls, you will. You may or may not like dialect, but I just like experimenting with language and language things.
3: You know, I'm going on 47 years old, and when I started this game, we only had one edition of d and and we was happy about it. <laughs> so I don't even know what an indie game is. Sounds like some kind of hipster nonsense to me. So I'm going to say <laughs> you're
4: not entirely wrong.
3: <laughs> I'm going to say for all you grognards out there, if you play first edition D&D, you're an indie player.
0: <laughs> oh, well, OK. So I think mine is going to be a little game that I haven't played, but really want to at some point called Anima Prime which is my preferred system for anything that tries to model like a a JRPG or certain kinds of anime, like anything in that genre, like a Final Fantasy style game, very much in that particular wheelhouse. This is not to be confused with Anima Beyond Fantasy, which is a fantasy flight game and is a gargantuan mess of a system where a one is really a minus three and a 100 is really a
1: 115.
0: Uh. It's... Yeah, that's a big, clunky, class-based mess. This is a, a very tight game by Christian Griffin that really seems like it would play very, very well. It's got this cool thing of moving dice between pools. And it's very tactile in a very pleasant way at the table. So I, I am very interested in it. And uh, the cool thing is the uh, there's a Creative Commons version of the game that is free. It's not got any art or formatting. But you can download the PDF that's, you know, about 150 pages for free. So I'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Cool. Uh, but I, I really quite like it. It's, it's really good. It looks really fun. And I think still, that's fun.
3: I'm still waiting to meet somebody who's played the old Traveler system, which was designed in hexadecimal. With- uh,
1: I actually think my mother may have played it. That's awesome. Understood it? Absolutely not. But played it? She thinks she has.
3: Nice. <laughs> Fair enough.
0: Yeah, I know... Um, I know at least some people who have played that and, you know, they they have fond memories for good reason. Well, thank you, Nathaniel. That was a, a good question. Uh, we'll make sure to link all of those uh, games that we mentioned in the show notes as well. And if you, you want to support us on Patreon, get your question answered on the mics or at least added to our big table of questions here, patreon.com slash saving the game. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can help us stay on the air and, and do what we do. We appreciate it. Thank you, Nathaniel. And thank you to Father David and Daniel for joining us and answering this. All right. We've got some scripture to read, uh, including um, something from the Deuterocanical texts that we normally don't read. But I was very excited, again, because we have guests from a tradition who we don't normally have on the show. Very excited to bring that in as well. Who wants to start off with Deuteronomy?
1: I can do that. So, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 19 to 22. Now write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it, so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. And when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and calamities come on them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised them on oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites.
4: I'll take Proverbs I guess. Okay. This is Proverbs 17:17 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Oh, and I'll
2: take uh, Wisdom of Sirach. Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 4, verses 20 through 25. Watch for a proper opportunity and keep yourself from evil. And do not bring shame upon your soul. For there is shame that brings sin, and there is a shame which is glory and grace. Do not show partiality to someone for your own harm, and do not let your respect for another cause you to fall. Do not withhold a word in time of need, for wisdom is made known by a word, and instruction by a word of the tongue. Do not speak against the truth and do not be put to shame by ignorance.
0: Uh, and I'll take Hebrews 10, unless uh, Father
3: David, you want it? I was going to read Psalm 18, 1 to 18 okay. for you, if you like. Perfect. Uh, this yeah, is, This is great. Uh, this reminds me of why I do what I do. And it also is a piece of material for the DMs out there who want to know how to handle divine intervention. You might just want to read them this. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my foundation, my refuge, my deliverer. My God is my helper, on him I will hope. My champion, the horn of my salvation and my protector. I will call upon the Lord and praise him, and I shall be saved from my enemies. The anguish of death surrounded me. The floods of the lawless troubled me greatly. The anguish of Hades encircled me. The snares of death ran me down. In my affliction I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God, He heard my voice from his holy temple, and my cry shall come before him into his ears. Then the earth was shaken and trembling, and the foundations of mountains were stirred up, and they were shaken because God was angry with them. Smoke ascended in his wrath and burst into flame from his face. Coals were kindled by him. He bowed heaven and descended, and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon the cherubim and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place. His tabernacle was around him, dark water in the clouds of the sky. Because of the brightness before him, the clouds, the hail, and the fiery coals passed through. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High gave forth his voice. He sent forth his arrows and scattered them, and he multiplied lightning and threw them into utter confusion. Then the springs of the waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were uncovered by your rebuke, O Lord, by the breathing of the breath of your wrath. He sent from on high, and he took me. He took me out of many waters. He will deliver me from my strong enemies and from those who hate me, because they were too strong for me. Great. Thank you.
0: And our last verse is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So our topic tonight really sort of, I hope, leans into both uh, the personal experiences of our guests and also uh, the expertise that as runners of a convention based around Christian genre fiction, (laughs) we can lean on here. Uh we want to talk about genre fiction in general and Christian genre fiction and uh, how that sort of interacts with this big looming event that sort of shaped a lot of our experiences as Christian geeks and I would say in many ways geek culture in general uh the satanic panic of like the late 70s to early 90s depending on exactly how you define it
1: which by um, the way barely happened in Canada so like I hear vague things about like, oh, no, yeah, D&D wasn't allowed in my house. So we had to, you know, work around and, and play different rules for different games or whatever. But like, this is not a thing that happened in Canada. And the only people that I know in Canada who are even slightly uncomfortable with D&D are Americans. <laughs> um, so this is a, a pretty singularly American thing to have happened. And I would love to learn more about it.
0: OK, so I, I guess let's start here. Daniel, Father David, what are your experiences with the Satanic Panic?
3: Well, I got to live through it. I was I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I actually grew up in Michigan. And uh, as you may know, in 1979, James Dallas Egbert, the a student at Michigan State University, disappeared. Mm-hmm. And people believe that it was because he had become obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons and had had gone off into the steam tunnels and probably met some horrible fate. Right. And of course, the kid was just like he went out of town for the weekend and didn't tell anybody. Right. But but that was like this seminal moment. And and uh, as as people at uh, old TSR probably will will be quick to admit it was probably the best thing that ever happened to D&D because all of a sudden it became this incredibly scary taboo thing. And it started flying off the shelves because kids wanted to know what it was. It was like, a, it was like scarier than the Ouija board. Right. So, you know, that was, and that was happening around the same time you had the kind of the, the panic around razor blades and the Halloween candy. So, I mean, there was this, there was this kind of struggle in culture and popular culture with with this sense that there was some ominous, looming, uh, dark force preying on our children, uh, like uh, like something wicked this way comes, you know, came out at that time, and it was a really a kind of a zeitgeist film, actually, for what it felt like.
4: Yeah, I remember back in my church when I was, you know, I lived through that era too. I'll be forty later this year, and you know, talking. With like local police departments about occult investigation officers and stuff. And then I just kind of didn't hear anything about it for ages afterwards. And it's like, was anything actually going on in my area or were they just freaked out too? Sure.
0: And this was the same era as like the McMartin preschool trial and a bunch of other things.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Daniel? Well, I was a little bit later than Father David. Obviously, I, I grew up in the, in the early nineties, but kind of the first experience I had with that was, um, Adventures in Odyssey from Focus on the Family is a radio drama. And they put out this two part episode called Castles in Cauldrons, um, <laughs> where the characters, uh, like evil cousin comes from out of town and starts getting them into castles and cauldrons, which is this game that they play. And by the end of it, they were summoning actual demons using this stuff. And and it was like very serious. And this was obviously a problem. And people were talking about that. And I also grew up in denominations that had like the Jack Chick tracks that we handed out you know with the with the different uh, D&D warnings and how that led to the actual cult and I actually grew up thinking Harry Potter was evil too like that, I, I grew up in that time period as well and so um, I decided that Harry Potter was demonic and that it wasn't any good and um, and then I went to, I went to an evangelical college where D and D was actually still banned, um, back, back in, I, I went in 2006 and this college still had still banned Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. Um, but some of us had an underground, uh, D and D, you know, game going on and, and we, we kind of started and I started seeing it wasn't that bad. I started reading Harry Potter in college, um, and then I started looking when I started looking around for churches after college, I found orthodoxy and I just found a lot of like minded people in in orthodoxy. And that led to the foundation of Doxicon.
3: Yeah. When I was very in, cool, when I was in seminary, I remember there was about uh, three of us that wanted to. Uh, three or four of us I wanted to play a game and we had to get permission to do any kind of off-campus social activity and I was the one who lived off campus so I had to tell them it wasn't like it's just not it's not Dungeons and Dragons it's a role-playing game but we're using scripture and we did but it was Dungeons and Dragons we just <laughs> you know we just threw in a lot of scripture to make it legit I guess but <laughs> Right. (laughs) I guess they can find that out now. I've been ordained long. Well,
4: I mean, as what you read, you know, during our scripture um, section illustrates, it's not like there's nothing useful in the Bible for good role playing. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean,
4: and it's certainly not as if. Dungeons and Dragons didn't have its
0: antecedents in a lot of Christian literature, like the Tale of Charlemagne, for example, or the the Song of Roland.
3: Sure. I I wanted to get to the Song of Roland, actually, because one of the I think one of the ironies of the satanic panic was that. They were kind of right, because I think a lot of people did get interested in the occult because they were told, if you like these things, you're going to become an occultist. So they said, okay, well, I better go check that out then. Um, but for me, it was the more I wanted to do this, I wanted to study the, the primary sources. Uh, the old, The first edition Dungeon Master's Guide had a great list of reading materials in the back, and it included some of the historical pieces like... Chanson du Roland and the, uh, you know, Nibelungenlied and all these great and incredible medieval texts. And uh, I started really reading that. But one thing you find out when you actually study medieval history is that you find out that it is not a, a, a Wiccan fair or a Renaissance festival. It's Christendom. And you find yeah. an incredible age of faith where Christianity was the worldview. And it's a, it's an, it's incredibly, it was, it was exciting for me because I actually also got to know about my own people's history, uh, the history of Byzantium, so-called Byzantium of Constantinople, uh, of that incredible empire and that incredible civilization, which is not very well known in the West, unfortunately. And, uh, so yeah, they, they role-playing game pushed me in a way that I discovered the roots of Christianity. So I'm grateful for it.
4: Yeah, that's, that's very cool. I think there's
0: something interesting, just a a little throwaway line almost that you said there where, you know, oh, yeah, we included some scripture, but it was Dungeons and Dragons. It's interesting that in this era, one thing I hear over and over is, well, we found ways to make it acceptable to our parents, which is usually who I'm I'm talking to. You know, so, yeah, well, I had to make it okay to my parents to game or sometimes, you know, college authorities or church figures, things like that. But usually what I'm hearing is parents. And it seems like there were two different solutions that I, I keep hearing. The first is to run a game with explicitly Christian themes or Christian elements, and c- sort of call those out to the forefront. And the second was to play anything other than Dungeons and Dragons, because uh, if it's Star Wars or BattleTech or anything else, as long as it doesn't have the name recognition, well, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, that was. It's only oh, Dungeons Gerps and Dragons became that's bad, my right?
4: first system, so.
2: That That's actually yeah. the same experience I had. I, my friends and I played GURPS because it wasn't D&D exactly. And so I, my parents were very concerned about specifically D&D. And, and, and so that, that definitely tracks with my experience.
4: One of the things that was kind of cool about GURPS too is, um, the, as it turns out, Steve Jackson games had really good, like research and editing standards, and so even though I haven't played GURPS in years, I'm still glad I've got a lot of those books on my shelf. So that wasn't like it was an end run that served its purpose and then no longer had any value for my gaming experience going forward. So that's kind of nice. Yeah. I mean, GURPS is still a, a perfectly fine game. Yeah. Oh, the fourth edition's great. But I mean, even like the old, you know, third edition books, they're so well researched and stuff. I've actually based like I have started actual research papers with the bibliography of a GURPS book more than once. <laughs> So I kind of want to connect this to a statement of purpose
0: on the Doxicon website that I really like. This this is quoting from St. Basil, speaking to the young men on the right use of Greek literature. And this, um, I'm going to just read straight off the Doxicon website here. Now then, altogether after the manner of bees must we use these writings. For the bees do not visit all the flowers without discrimination, nor indeed do they seek to carry away entire those upon which they light. But rather, having taken so much as is adapted to their needs, they let the rest go. So we, if wise, shall take from heathen books whatever befits us and is allied to the truth, and shall pass over the rest. Now, I particularly like that imagery. And it's telling that the very next line in the statement of purpose here is, The purpose of Doxicon is to discuss which flowers we should visit and what pollen we should take from them.
2: Yeah. When we were, when we were starting Doxicon, that, that passage from St. Basil was really kind of our foundational document. And it really contains everything that we want to do. You know, when we're looking at pagan literature at the time, you know, know, they contained a lot of objectionable things. I mean, they contained literal worship of gods. You know, people in them weren't very well behaved. Um, and they had a lot of similarities to the kind of fantasy and science fiction. Genres of today. And and so we said, if St. Basil was was counseling these young men to do that, we should carry on his mission and, and do the same today. Mm-hmm. If you
0: Let's lo- talk about then, How do we make sure what we take in is healthy and rewarding?
3: I was just going to say that, I mean, this is not a new problem for Christianity, right? This goes back to the mm-hmm. to the foundational centuries. And there was basically kind of three different trends that you saw in how, for example, Hellenism was dealt with by early christians one was separatism where you just cast out everything and you you know you hide from it you don't want anything to do with it the other is syncretism where like the gnostics you you hybridize so much that you lose the original integrity of your judeo-christian construction and then the third is is kind of what we would call the orthodox way which is to synthesize like the bee synthesizes from the pollen the good honey and so, yeah, it requires discernment, it requires good judgment, it requires, a, a, first of all, I think, a really good understanding of who you are as a, and what your faith is about in the first place. If you don't, it, it, you know, you, you, you don't have a good uh, smell of vision if you don't have, uh, have a good understanding of your faith. You're easily led astray if you don't know what is a distinctly Christian point of view as opposed to a secular or a pagan view.
1: Yeah, have a solid foundation. Build your house on the rock.
3: Yeah.
0: Right. So here's another related question that I kind of want to pose for everyone to debate here. There are certain pieces of media that are, in my opinion, problematic for various different reasons, right? It doesn't really matter necessarily which one, but they have kind of become relevant cultural touchstones. And knowing those, being able to talk about those, those open up conversations, right? They make us part of the world. How do we deal with those? It's easy to say, well, just take out the parts that you that you want. You know, take away those parts that are helpful. You know, I, for example, really cannot stand Game of Thrones.
1: I was just gonna say. Yeah, I was, I was just going there too. <laughs> you know.
0: Okay, good. I'm glad we're all on the same page here. But you can have a lot of conversations with people based on Game of Thrones. How do we? How do we handle that? Is there? some way to use that as a, a cultural touchstone that connects us to other people as a way of starting conversations.
2: I, I have the same problem with Game of Thrones, actually, and I, I've stopped watching that because of those concerns. And I think St. Basil's is the best where, where, you know, we we don't visit all of the flowers. And, and I think that if we go to something and it's producing bad fruit, I, I think we find that there's very little we can kind of ally with ourselves in it. And, and while I'm sympathetic to the, you know, it's a cultural touchstone and we need to be able to talk about it. Um, I think there are plenty of other cultural touchstones that we can, that we can share with other people. I mean, I I think we're not going to find, we're not likely to find someone who watches Game of Thrones that doesn't also watch like the Marvel cinematic universe as well. And so there are other ways that we can, we can kind of talk with them. I don't think we have to be aligned with them on every single, uh, genre or kind of universe.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And just to kind of springboard off of that, I think the MCU is a great place to kind of play, you know, Mr. B with, to go back to St. Basil's stuff. I mean, you can, you can pluck a lot out of Dr. Strange is all about like a rejection of reductive materialism and the value of being selfless. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. Um, uh, especially the way that movie ends, you know, Mm
3: -hmm. our clergy keynote at last year's Doxicon uh, father, David way, gave an incredible talk on Dr. Strange. And I love Dr. Strange, but I had not even thought of half the things that he mentioned. He really got deep into it and really showed all these, uh, and not just like in the, in the storyline and the themes, but like even in the symbolism, he was able to pull out some incredible stuff. Uh, so there's you know there's a lot of work that can be done with the Marvel and and recently I saw something that I was disappointed by. It was it was a Christian review of I think I think it was like a Black Panther or something, and it was so negative. And it was like Marvel's coming for your children next because they've got this agenda. And I'm like, dude, what have you? What if there you was been- a tremendous yeah. amount of redemptive stuff in Black Panther? Exactly. Yeah,
1: it was also one of the few. I mean, granted, there was a magic rock that made all of their power work, but like, it was one of the most effective-looking utopias I've ever seen. There was very little, if any, dystopia in in that particular society. It was fantastic.
3: Didn't mm-hmm. didn't you just say something about building on a rock, though? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm>
1: confused. <laughs>
4: well, we're gonna have to be careful. This guy doesn't miss anything. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, I was just thinking about Doctor Strange because uh, one of our podcasting buddies, Mike Perna, for whatever reason, he is even later getting around to this movie than I was. I just watched it a couple months ago.
1: Um, I I still haven't seen it. I don't care about spoilers, but I still haven't seen it.
0: Oh, Jenny, just watch it. You will love it. Um, while it's still on. We're
1: we're talking we are talking about problematic material, and I find that material particularly problematic for reasons that I'm very happy to discuss on Twitter, not on this podcast.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. I feel like they fixed some of that in the movie as opposed to the comics, just for the okay, record. Okay. But I think I kind of know where you're going with it. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, it's telling that Doctor Strange is by it was directed by Scott Derrickson, who is a Christian and best known for making horror films. Hmm. I feel like that is even more relevant to our discussion in some ways because I think there are a lot of people who would say, well, there's nothing re- at all worthwhile in a horror film.
2: You know, that that's really interesting because Doxicon, this last time we actually had our first um, speaker on the horror genre and, and her talk, um, Eve Tushnet, was one of the best Doxicon speeches we have. And and so we followed that up this year. Our keynote speaker is actually going to be speaking on Del Toro's uh, work in Hellboy and The Shape of Ooh. Water, actually. And the, and we also have uh, excuse me. When and we
1: I, no, I, I'm just saying ooh because yes. I like Del Toro a lot.
2: <laughs> and so and then we have uh, Karen Ulo, another f- writer who's going who's be, who's written some things in the horror genre as well, and she's going to be coming and speaking on it. And I actually think there's a lot of potential in the horror genre for Christians to to speak about. Actually,
1: absolutely, I think. Um, like one real quick question: Do you have any of this
4: stuff recorded?
2: Um, yes, all of the. Past speeches have been recorded and they're available on Ancient Faith Radio. I will put links in the uh in the show notes afterwards. Ooh, Sweet. Express. All right, go ahead, awesome. Jenny.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, I forget. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's fine.
4: Horror. Oh no, wait,
1: I, I remember. I remember. Yeah, horror, horror, and stuff. But yeah, I think there is a lot of room in there for redemptive themes. I, I don't know if anybody. It's it's a fairly new movie, so I I won't spoil anything. Uh, but if you've watched A Quiet Place, mm-hmm. there is so much material in there. I I you know what? I could probably write a sermon based around the quiet uh, based around A Quiet Place because there's so much in there about hope and kindness and empathy and redemption and. To think that there isn't any room in a horror or or suspense thriller genre for those themes, I think, is, is really quite reductive.
2: Well, if you want to write down a session, we have some room next year in Doxicon if you want to come and give a talk. Please.
1: Uh, <laughs> I like being recorded so that it can be edited. So, it's, I mean, you know, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs>
0: We may have to do a Doxicon panel or something. We'll see how oh, this goes. I would
1: love to. I would love to be able to travel that many times in a year.
4: <laughs> yeah, me oh, too. So I. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I have no time
4: off left after, like, Fear the Gods.
0: <laughs> I know. Oh,
3: no.
0: um, but it's kind of interesting. We keep talking about the, all these specific types of genre fiction, but underlying that is is my knowledge that as somebody who lives in the South, you know, I am sure that there are a lot of people around me, even plenty of folks in my mainline Presbyterian church who would, would kind of say, well... I don't know. A lot of this stuff doesn't isn't explicitly Christian. I, I try and go for the stuff that you know does have specifically and explicitly Christian themes because there's this underlying assumption that that somehow makes it safe or better. And I would say that's not always true.
1: Yeah, I think it may be a bit reductive to say this, but as much as any tool can be the right tool, any tool can be the wrong tool, too. So just just slapping a christian skin on a pile of garbage does a disservice to christianity first of all yes and then is also just straight up dangerous in a lot of cases
2: so, so something actually, I, I, I totally agree with the just slapping a Christian label on it. I, I worked in the, uh, when I was Protestant, I worked in the Christian film industry for about five years. Um, you know, sl- slapping that Christian label on a bunch of a pile of garbage and it, it was just so reductivist and it, the things we were making, we were making them to be Christian. We weren't making them to be, you know, beautiful and true. And, and I feel like something that we've emphasized at Doxicon is anything that is beautiful and true is by necessity allied to God and to Christianity. And so that's what we're seeking to do with Doxicon is, is, is find those things that maybe even people don't realize are Christian or are beautiful or are true and, and kind of shining that light on them. Sure.
0: Now, yeah. I do know there is Christian genre
4: fiction out there. That is good. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't know any of it. Um, <laughs> I would contemporary stuff. I would I would say a, that a couple of Frank Peretti's novels would qualify.
3: <laughs> that's actually one of the fun parts of Doxicon is that we we bring not just people who are fans and people who want to reflect theologically, but a lot of our presenters are writers of uh contemporary science fiction and fantasy and they're christian and they're sometimes they're doing explicitly so as whatever you want to call it christian genre fiction or they're just writing good fiction and they're bringing their christianity into the process because that's who they are and uh, so we've encountered some people that have written some really wonderful stuff and uh, i'm excited to to see more and more of it being produced over time and and i really my hope is to see it just be part of um the regular publishing world, but I, you know, I know how it is in the world we live in today. You have a lot of uh, pressure to conform to societal norms, perhaps, and some people might feel like they can't uh, accomplish that in those fields, but I don't think we should cede that ground. I think we should just keep producing quality material and let it speak for itself. And eventually I think it'll, it'll get there. I mean, I think about some of the great authors, Uh, I think about Frank Herbert's Dune. What that did for Mm -hmm. science fiction. The first edition of Dune sold, I don't know, like a piddling amount of copies. And it just by word of mouth became this thing. And now, you know, one of the greatest books of all time, basically, in terms of publishing.
0: Sure. The Martian actually was the same way. I remember its author whose name escapes me at the moment. And I'm very embarrassed by this
4: The recent one or? Yeah, Andy Weir. I remember Andy, uh, Andy Weir,
0: somebody posted something after The Martian blew up. You know, he was on Reddit individually talking to people about his novel, being like, hey, you should buy a copy. I think you'd like it. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay. We'll give it a shot. Having to do one on, like, sales one person at a time <laughs> to get it started. Isn't so, that how
3: m- most of us buy our books, though? I mean, there's so much drack out there that I wait until somebody tells me, you have to read this. Oh, yeah, you know? of course. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, that's... A- I,
4: I have been burned one too many times <laughs> by a exactly. good-looking cover. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's one of the reasons why... <laughs> Brief rant from the former bookseller here. That's one of the reasons why like smaller bookstores or ones with expert staff in them are so valuable mm-hmm. because those people read and they can show you where the good stuff is.
1: Yeah. And that's what libraries are for, too. That way you don't yes. have to spend money.
4: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting
0: out of the days where most of my reading is Little Blue Truck.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man. I mean, Little Blue Truck's a really good kid's book, but. You know,
1: but really 27 times book.
4: in one night might be a little much. Is that what you're saying? Yeah.
0: Although, actually, I'm reading Dealing with Dragons to My Daughter, which is a oh, wonderful book. Oh, that's a
1: lovely book. one. Oh, that's it's so a good. good. One.
0: I have the whole box set. It's great. My daughter. I'd actually say
1: that that would be a good one. That It, it does contain a lot of Christian themes, mm-hmm. but is not explicitly Christian.
0: I think it kind of comes close because it is drawing on traditional European fantasy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And all those fairy tales, because it's sort of a send up of those. Patricia Reed does a really good job of kind of sending up those tropes. But because it is based on European fantasy, which draws so heavily from folktales and Christian stories and Christian traditions, there are a large number of Christian and pseudo Christian elements in there.
1: Yeah, I also think, especially the diplomacy over straight to fisticuffs thing, yes. really, really does help as well.
3: Yeah, there's my, a lot of
0: well, let's think our way around the problem.
3: When my daughter, uh, who's twelve now, a few years ago. Uh, She was starting to read and she could read fine, but she would want me to read her stories at night. And I'd Mm -hmm. be like, really? (laughs) So I would start reading her. She'd say, read me from the fairy tale book. So I'd start reading the fairy tale that she knew. And then I'd start shifting into the like the Russian or the German variant. And she'd start freaking (laughs) out. So she'd say, stop, stop. I'll read it myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my problem is uh, explaining to my daughter what everything in the monster manual actually is. So that's real fun. Here's a a kind of related question about contemporary Christian genre fiction. How much of that is itself a reaction to the satanic panic? My suspicion as somebody who doesn't know much about the genre is that there is still a bit of that reactionary no, no, this is okay" sense to it. But I may be wrong about that.
2: Um, I think, I think you're very right. I mean, having worked in, you know, in the Christian film industry and, and being adjacent to kind of the more conservative groups, like, I, I think, like, the book, like, uh, Aragon, for example, is a direct, you know, kind of reaction to the satanic panic where, where you're attempting to create fantasy that is kind of palpable to, to a more fundamentalist reactionary palette and you know you're trying to create something that that's safe essentially and that book just i mean that book just rips wholesale from like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings so it's obvious that the author you know is partaking of these less palatable things and trying to create a more palatable version and i think i think that's what a lot of christian genre fiction ends up being is is these people who have read the supposedly less palatable things and are trying to create more palatable versions for for a christian audience uh, i
3: mm-hmm. will say that i did actually find aragon strangely refreshing the when it came out though because it was like came out when everything was anti-hero everything was grimdark and it was like oh, oh yeah a real yeah. hero who's just a hero nice that's nice yeah
1: that's actually partly the way- why I find uh, My Hero Academia so refreshing. It's just they're good kids with good hearts. It's very mm-hmm. nice. That yeah, was but- one
4: of the reasons why I found Wonder Woman so refreshing when I saw that in the theater. She's like, those people are suffering, and I'm going to stop it. Try and keep up. And they were like,
1: uh, <laughs> what? It's not even our mission. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at and that point, know- she's already halfway across the field.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and actually, you know, think about uh, Red Ball. Was the same for me. You know, you had a not necessarily extremely straightforward, but very definite tale—a heroic tale as opposed to a sulky, unwilling antihero—and that was pleasant. And you know, certainly Redwall is about as close as you get to Christian in a distinctly fantasy world.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I love the Redwall series growing up, and 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 I think things like that are what we need to be focusing on things that are, you know, beauty and truth, even if they're not explicitly Christian. uh, I think those are things that we can, you know, we can ally to ourselves. And, and, and that's really what we need to be looking at. And that's, and that was created not to be, you know, Christian specifically, it was created just to be a good story. And I think Mm -hmm. if people focus more on telling good stories, not necessarily Christian stories, I think they, they'd end up a lot better.
0: Right. Which is not to say, of course, that good Christian stories are undesirable.
2: (laughs) No, no, of course no. not. I, 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 I think they have their role. I just think that, I think that we as Christians who are artists and creators need to practice our thing before becoming that. Like for example, C.S. Lewis, uh, when he started out, he tr- he tried to write this like, uh, Pilgrim's Progress knockoff, um, that was just unpublishable and unreadable. And, and he learned and, you know, he went back and he, he pulled from, you know, different sources and, and, and came up with his own, his own voice and, and created something that was beauty, beautiful and true that had Christian themes. But when you try to just do, you know, a Pilgrim's Progress knockoff or just try to create something that's, that's so explicitly Christian, I, I think you lose sight of the, the storytelling.
1: I think you also lose the opportunity to, as I mentioned before, uh, just slapping a Christian label on garbage doesn't make it not a pile of garbage. I think it also inhibits the ability to criticize that sort of thing happening. There's a book series that I really, really enjoy called the, the Sky Chaser series, and it's about like generation ships for colonizing new planets, and there are two ships, one of which is run by... It, it under a quote-unquote Christian model. And, and it, it says explicitly that this is a Christianship, a Christianship run by somebody who is not acting in a particularly Christian way. And I, th- I think the, the author did a really, really good job of criticizing a certain hierarchical structure that can occur in many churches without actually tearing down Christianity in, d- in and of itself, because there are many other Christian characters in the book who are like, who say straight up, oh, but that's not how that is supposed to be working. That's not the way that I was taught Christianity. I know about you, but this feels unchristian to me. And how no matter how many times you put the Christian label on it, it's not going to be a Christian thing to do. And so I think if you you just say, this is going to be a, a good Christian book full of good Christian morals and there are no fights ever, you're you're going to miss a lot of opportunity there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I came to faith through C.S. Lewis, if we're being perfectly honest. And a lot of that is because C.S. Lewis is a, an excellent writer who presented, who wrote so well and made it clear that God is this wonderful creative source and made that seem inviting through good writing by celebrating art and craft as something godly. And that, more than anything, <laughs> I think, reached into me and said, yeah, I want more of this.
1: Yeah. Story yeah. is a holy gift. Yeah. And you know, we'll say it I until mean, it stops being true.
0: Yeah. Jesus taught in parables. Sure. Exactly. So let, let me ask you this. Is there anything we can take away from this this period of time, the satanic panic that still shapes the, the role-playing game community and genre fiction writers to this time?
2: I think that what, what we at Oxygen are trying to do is we're trying to be a space where people who are interested in these things and who are maybe told by their home churches or people they know, oh no, you can't do that, it's satanic. Instead of going like Father David said, some of them do to kind of the occult things, is so like, oh, that's where you'll fit in. We, we want to say, no, here is Doxicon, here is a place where you can fit in. There are people like you who, you know, like these things and like these genres and do so in a Christ worshiping way. And I, I think what we can take away from the period is we as the church need to be more welcoming and make sure that we're reaching out to to these people
3: yeah we we cannot cede the culture to the separatists or the syncretists we have to be active synthesists and be involved and be engaged with the culture and draw out of it like daniel said the beauty and the truth that could be found there and when there's not we can say yeah well that that's some very clever storytelling or that's some very interesting stuff but how does it how does your spirit feel after that How did, how did, you know, how does that affect your soul? Um, how does your view of the world feel after you've partaken of that? Are you uplifted? Are you inspired? Are you, are, do you feel repentant or do you just feel hateful, gritty, lusty, whatever, you know, and identifying how culture can impact us and becoming sensitive to its influences? You know, I think we have something to say about that. And I think we, uh, without sounding like knee jerk reactionaries.
0: Yeah. I can't remember the original source for this, but somebody pointed out to me once that the great call of, you know, during the panic that, you know, oh well, Christians shouldn't be playing role playing games. And, you know, there Christians shouldn't be at the gaming table essentially meant that there were no Christians at the gaming table when important things came up. And that did tremendous damage to everyone else who was left gaming there.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I play the guys I play with only one is uh that i know of is a confessing christian the others are atheists or somewhere else they're you know they they probably got told that their whole life and they have never particularly seen any any need or desire to go towards christianity because for them it's basically a a monolith uh, or it was until they met me, uh, a monolith of negativity towards all the things that uh, define them and that they enjoy in their life. So uh, one of the things I've enjoyed is is being the exception to the rule and, and hopefully establishing for them a sense that there is another whole way of being Christian.
4: Yeah. And I, I think to kind of go back to what Grant was saying, it's it's terrible that the church like discarded this particular thing at such a high velocity during that time mm-hmm. because you know I you know going all the way back to our Patreon question at the beginning of the episode I mean you know Jenny your mom has used a role playing game as a Sunday school tool and the, the the thing that's wonderful about these games is that they're participatory you are inside the story you are making decisions it lets you explore things you know you're you're not just reduced to being out as a passive consumer it actually if it's used in the right way, it kind of forces you to choose and contend with parts of you that you may or may not want to contend with. And it's like, there's all this very healthy stuff in there, you know, spiritually, emotionally, psych- psychologically, intellectually. And it's just like, don't throw that away.
0: <laughs> That's true. So how do we build bridges going forward? How do we reach out to people who have, who, who are geeks, but, maybe aren't Christians anymore because of this satanic panic where they were told, Oh well, no, no, you don't belong. And also to Christians who are afraid of this sort of of moral contamination or, or is it something along those lines? How do we reach out yeah. to in
4: both directions? What you'd call the nothing is imaginary crowd. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, that's that's something that we've been struggling with a lot because we, we've we had people who have come to Doxicon who aren't necessarily Christians but are interested in in how faith and these fictions interact. Um, sadly, I, I've also had people, Christians who have attended Doxicon before, say during our 2015 thing that they wouldn't come because our theme was Harry Potter. And so, you know, th- there's still a lot of those people to reach out to. And, and I think the way we're taking it is we're just taking it that – we're here, you know, and one of the things we say in Eastern Orthodoxy when people ask, how do we reach out? You know, we say, come and see, you know, just, just come and experience our, how we live our lives and, and see that it matches up with the message that we're saying. And so being a part of these people's lives, they can see, you know, if they're the nothing is imaginary crowd, they can see that our faith is richer for, for these genres. If they're not Christian and they're interested in the genres, they can see that our faith makes these genres more interesting and there's more layers to peel back because we're christian
3: yeah i once actually was in a confession and um you know fantasia in greek fantasy is generally in the church fathers kind of a negative term because it reflects our our passionate imagination leading us into temptation and so this Mm -hmm. priest was saying you know god does not exist in fantasy and i was like yeah 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 but then i thought about it and i thought you know what that's not true either because god is the original image maker He created us in his image and likeness. He imagined us into being. And when he came amongst us in the flesh, he teach, as he said, through parables, through imaginative discourse that required people to envision and imagine the world in a way that was different than anything they had ever encountered before. And then he backed it up with real life actions. But he started by appealing to imagination. So God, for me, exists completely in the imagination. The imagination is, and, and, and that sounds wrong, but he exists there because he is the original imaginer, and my imagination is a God-given gift to help participate in that creative process that God has given us to participate in. Mm-hmm.
1: There, there is a, uh, an Anglican prayer that I like to quote fairly frequently. It's the prayer for truth and reconciliation. And in it, story is described as a holy gift. Our ability to tell our own stories through whatever medium we choose is a holy, blessed gift. And I don't think that throwing away any given medium, because I I don't think, I I cannot possibly think of any inherent, any medium for telling a story. I, I, I can't imagine any medium for telling a story to be inherently evil. I think it's how we use those mediums.
3: There was an article I read a few years ago that was talking about um, Tolkien's Silmarillion. And they said most people don't think about the Silmarillion because it's kind of written in that archaic style. but, But this article was saying the Silmarillion is the most heavy metal story of all time. (laughs) <laughs> and it was kind of showing like how this, like these incredible images of Thangaradrum and the, and Melkor and, and, and like, and how awesome it was when they fought against him. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, that's cool. But even more heavy metal in my book is the gospel. It is so incredible what God has done for us in defeating death, the, the devil, and sin in our lives. And, uh, and I think we need to let people know that that is something that they are called to participate in in this life and to be saved by it.
4: Yeah, I and mean, I, if if some Christian metal band hasn't written a song called The Harrowing of Hell, I will
3: be very, very disappointed. <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right.
0: Do we have anything else to add to this? Because otherwise, I think this is an excellent place to wrap up.
3: I shoot the magic missile into the darkness. <laughs> you guys got me, too. Are there girls?
4: <laughs> thank you. Thank oh you man, so much. I haven't seen that video in ages. <laughs> all means, oh, and on that note, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, it's officially it's time.
4: <laughs>
0: wow. Uh, all right. Well, Father David Subu, Daniel Silver, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a really good, really productive discussion, and I can't thank you enough for coming on with us.
3: God bless you for what you do. Thank you for having well, thank us. You.
0: Of course. And one more time for those who uh, maybe didn't get a chance to write down the first time, uh, where can people find out more information about Doxicon?
2: Uh, Just go to doxicon.org, look up Doxicon Prime on Facebook, and we'll be having Doxicon this year in D.C., November 2nd and 3rd.
0: Well, thank you again for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to have you. And from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you. See you later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, Or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.